Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I will be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. I am delighted, Bryony, to invite you onto our podcast. And you are a journalist, an author, a podcaster, an advocate for mental health, a mother, a daughter, a partner, and you've written seven books and one novel. So we have a lot to talk about. And my first question on this podcast is, tell me about a challenge you've been facing or have had to overcome? Oh, I mean, where would I start? (laughs) Well, I suppose the challenge I've been facing recently has been perimenopause. That's been really hard. Yeah, I got very unwell again, I think over the whole of the pandemic with obsessive compulsive disorder, which I've had since I was a child, but I'd sort of felt I'd reached a really good place in my recovery from it but that came up again really badly and I thought oh it must be the pandemic but then there were a few other things that came at the same time and we realized I was actually going through an early menopause so that has been a challenge I have faced but that I I feel I am sort of getting through now but I you know like life is just a series of challenges isn't it really (laughs) it's I find that increasingly it's about learning the tools so that I don't have to pick up any of the sort of maladaptations that I learned in my childhood (laughs) to get through those challenges. So my like general challenge is get through challenges without picking up a drink or a drug or throwing myself into food or work obsessively and addictively, basically. Because in a way, what you're saying is that life is difficult. And it will remain difficult. There isn't this nirvana that you get to where everything is sorted and then you're in this calm, happy place and life just unfolds in this happy ever after picture that we've been sold, really, falsely sold, haven't we, in all the stories as children. Yeah, by the sort of way the world is set up, really, capitalism, consumerism, all of it. I think that's My sort of biggest mistake, I think, the thing that has made me deeply unhappy in my life generally has been the expectation of happy, if you see what I mean. It's been the pressure I've put on happy, the happy ever after, as you say, that that thing of I am only successful if I'm happy or I'm in a good place. And of course, that isn't the case. Feelings are there for a reason. Obviously, happy is great. Happy is wonderful. But it's not particularly realistic to expect to be happy all the time. And I'm certainly a lot more content. Content's a good word, isn't it, Julia? Yeah, I think content is more realistic. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, there are lots of light bars going off in my head. First of all, with early menopause, how ignorant we all have been 
that our hormones have such an impact on our mental health and that any pre-existing fault line is exacerbated if our hormones drop. And there are so many sides of you. There's this incredibly successful, productive you who writes seven books, produces a podcast, has a column on The Telegraph, and writes a very clever, smart, coherent narrative that is very energized and very transmissible, that you have a very powerful force of giving understanding to the things that really matter to you. And then there is this other side to you, which, you know, you called your book Bad World, where you feel chaotic, where you have OCD, where you've had alcoholic issues, and even got to the extent of being suicidal. And I guess for anyone listening, it's hard to understand how you reconcile these two what seem like polar opposites. Increasingly, Julia, I think there is not that much space between success as we perceive it in the modern world and those feelings of despair and suicide. And actually, if I've learned one thing in my career as a journalist, certainly in doing Mad World and in recovery and meeting people, it's that the most successful, quote unquote, and I'm doing waving fingers in the air right now because obviously this is a podcast. Most of the most successful people I have met or interviewed are deeply troubled and their success is driven from a place of a sense of failure, a sense of despair. You know, there's all sorts of different reasons for that. And I think that the more unhappy one is in themselves, the more they are driven to try and make up for it with external factors, hence the success. And that's certainly what I have discovered. So I think that's a very binary view that you're either down or out or you're you're in the gutter or you're looking at the stars. We're all much more of a melee and a mess of all of it, if you see what I mean. And that they're much more interlinked. Yeah. And I've got to a stage in my life and my career where if I'm being really honest, and this is, you know, you're Julia Samuel, so that's what I need to be with you. And, you know, it's a podcast called Therapy Works. But the more, I suppose, well I get as a person, the less I see those metrics and values of success as I don't know how possible it is to be an all-round well person and also striving to be the best at everything. And certainly for me, from my childhood, from my like early teens, that was my way of getting people to like me that's the way I learned. If I could be good at things and if I could work hard and if I could succeed, then my mum and dad will like me. You know, that is not any bearing on my mum and dad at all. That's often, that is the kind of the thing we put in as parents, isn't it? Do well, do well. And it's a very familiar thing for us to be achieving and striving for. But as I have got older, I see that the more I strive for success, if I'm trying to grow myself on Instagram or trying to be like, oh, I need to sell this many copies or reach this many people, I'm usually trying to shrink myself and it's painful. And so there comes a point where you have to go, oh, this external stuff isn't working that much, you know. And and I think that's certainly where I am right now in my life. I mean, that's such a fascinating insight and i 
I really agree with you. It's like when you find yourself working super hard to get more and more attention or more and more, as you'd say, quote, success and recognition and maybe income, maybe not always, often the driver beneath is feelings of inadequacy and that the real you is smaller and smaller. And the real you is a baby screaming that is crying out for attention that is longing to be held, I guess, and to know you are loved and lovable however you are, that you don't have to perform and succeed to be loved. Yeah, absolutely. Underneath it all is that that's a huge amount of fear, isn't there? And I often think that it's essentially what life is. You spend, if you're lucky, if you're really lucky and you live until you're in your 80s or 90s or whatever, is the first half of your life sort of you being fucked up by the world around you. <laughs> and then it's the second half you trying to unfuck yourself from all those maladaptations that you've learned. Does that make sense? It does make sense. It's a bit binary, isn't it? Because again, with this whole idea of happy ever after or what we perceive as success isn't necessarily the thing that gives us a sense of belonging, maybe, and a sense of calm. So I don't think it's about unpicking all the mistakes we made early on, because some people don't make their mistakes until quite a lot later. What I really get from you is that with each step forward, you find another part of yourself that you need to connect to, Mm -hmm. so that it's whether it's your body image or whether it's addiction or whether it's being OCD. But all of them come from a very early sense of being defective in some way Mm. and I imagine in therapy you've begun to interrogate that you know one of my questions is what do you think it is about these experiences that was particularly challenging for you and I don't know what that is I've always found life sort of generally baffling and like I've always felt quite other not other but like I've always found it hard to belong and feel part of something Because when you write, you have a very clear narrative and a lot of wisdom so that there are two things happening at the same time, aren't there? I mean, that you're very powerfully saying what's difficult in life and you have an understanding of it. And yet still, there's this feeling of feeling baffled, even as you write a clear narrative. Well, also because sort of the writing is has always been my way of going, hey, is anyone else baffled by this? <laughs> because I suspect they must be. Because if I'm going through this, other people must be going through this. Do you know what I mean? Because I can't be as like freakish as my brain keeps telling me I am. Surely I'm not the bad person my brain wants me to believe I am. And so I need to check this. I need to know. And maybe I am. And if that's the case, then okay, I'll I'll have to do what I have to do. But I have this hunch that maybe there are other people out there who feel like this as well. Perhaps we could all get together and chat and feel a bit better and belong. And that really is where all of my writing and all of my books have come from. There was never any clear-cut path or plan for this. You know, it was like it came out writing about first my obsessive compulsive disorder that came out of desperation because I was like if I can put this in the telegraph this paper that I had worked for for so long but I was like if I can put this in black and white and then the readers can see it and then if the police don't come and get me then maybe I'm okay and then it was like a way of reclaiming the OCD and 
also then maybe people will come to me and say, oh, me too. And that was exactly what happened, but on a scale far larger than I ever could have imagined. And that's what led to me writing Mad Girl and starting like Mad World and, and starting Mental Health Mates, because it was all like trying to connect with people like me who had felt lost or or like we don't belong because we didn't fit the conventional narrative. And that's so core to us as human beings, isn't it? That when we feel othered, when we feel outside of the tribe, from a biological, evolutionary biological perspective, we are under threat. Our life is in danger. And so in some ways it was by having the courage to own and name your difficulties and your sense of isolation that actually opened the door to you finding your tribe. But what I'm not clear on Mm. is having had this massive response and these different pathways into you, have they actually met you inside? Do you feel like you belong there? Definitely more. And they've definitely led me to find out new things about myself. So I think from, it was only really from writing about OCD and and Mad Girl that I, I really connected a lot of the dots. What were the dots that you connected? I suppose really it made me realise that I had a problem with alcohol, with drugs, that the way I lived my life, I didn't have to continue to live it like that, you know, because I was thrown into this world of mental health campaigning and meeting lots of other people who had experienced similar things, but I was being shown different ways of living, if that makes sense. And and so, yeah, but I do have to be really careful, Julia, I can become as addicted to validation, if you see what I mean, as I was to alcohol or drugs. And that's, I suppose, the challenge I have at the moment is, so I'm now five years sober. Go you! (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I think that for the first three or four years, the thing that was keeping me sober was other people's validation. If I'm being really honest, like, you're okay, Briny. You're okay. You're not just okay. You're great, Briny. And I was like, oh, yeah, I, I am not the bad person I think I am. And that's lovely. And social media provided that very neatly. Followers, all of that stuff. And then I think about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I started to realise that that didn't work anymore. And that was probably as hollow (laughs) as the drugs and the alcohol. And so now I have to be quite careful. The thing that helps you, that is your part of your superpower, is letting yourself learn from your own awareness. So you didn't get stuck in this next phase of some ways being a dry drunk and using validation and and followers to meet the pain rather than deal with the pain or find ways of expressing your pain, you recognised that there was another chapter in your relationship with yourself and this version of yourself and how you manage the discomfort within your body that comes up in many different ways. Oh, do you think that's my superpower? Yes. That's nice. I'm seeking validation from you, Julia. I don't think there's anything wrong with seeking validation. We are wired to connect. We are wired to be in relationship Mm. and interdependent. I think it's when the balance of it tips 
to that's all that we have. And so we have this feeling of emptiness and deficit inside. But I think relationally, moment to moment, having a hug, checking out, getting little moments of being met and feeling valued, I think is very meaningful and very important. Yeah. Oh, I absolutely agree. And I I think for me, it's about finding that balance. (laughs) What's wonderful and what certainly helps me in my personal life to navigate all of this stuff. And I don't think I'd be able to question myself and have that self-awareness when I got sober and part of the 12-step program. And that certainly has provided me with some recovery tools that are incredibly powerful (laughs) when I find myself in situations like that. But that is what it's built to do though i mean aa is built to replace one addiction with another more functioning addiction isn't it really what i think i'm really interested in is how there are a lot of acceptable addictions out there that we encourage and a lot of society works from a place of addiction and our phones are entirely uh, set up and indeed created to work on the addictive process social media food you know so much food is now processed and created to make us want more 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 work you know the way we idolize people who frankly have quite unhealthy working relationships and so i i'm really interested in how in a way we we have this perception of addiction and certainly i did for a long time as well and that perception helped to keep me in it ironically but that an addict was someone in an alleyway a shooting up or it was an old man on a park bench and obviously that is part of addiction but it's not all of it but I also came to a point uh, just over five years ago where I had to realize that I also was an addict and so that I could see that I was an alcoholic and I could see that I had massive problems with drugs with cocaine but it's funny because now the more work I do or the more time I put in to looking at myself internally as opposed to everything externally, the more I realise that I'm addicted. You know, there's all sorts of things that I use in an addictive way. Work's definitely one of them. Food. What's your definition of addiction? My definition is, is broadly speaking, the 12-step definition, which is that you're powerless over something and your life has become unmanageable because of it. It's your primary relationship, isn't it, is your addiction. It overrides all your other relationships. Yeah, and I I could totally slip into that place with work. A lot of us are encouraged to. Can't I? I mean, you're a therapist, so it's different, perhaps. I have definitely used work to save me at times. I've definitely used it as a sense of validation and to have meaning and connection. If I feel chaotic and out of control at work, it definitely gives me a balancing when I step out of myself. And sometimes that's good. Yeah. And sometimes it's definitely too much. But I think where you're really insightful is this idea of this hierarchy of addiction, like drugs and alcohol are morally decrepit and disgusting, and that somehow they're weak-willed. But those people who are addicted to work and very successful or social media or whatever it is, that somehow those, because they feed into a consumer frame of what is good about life, that success equals happiness, which is pretty... Shaky ground. Mm. Your awareness and being in a community and learning from other people has helped you. Where are you in your learning now? What what have you learned? I'm at the stage of my learning where I accept I have a lot more to learn. 
and that I'm learning all the time. But that is life. That's not a bad place to be, though, isn't it? No, I, in a way, I've always strived. I'm like, I need to know all the answers. That's been my thing. If I know what's going on everywhere and understand it, I can then have, maybe I'll be able to somehow control it. Yeah. <laughs> and that, of course, is bollocks. Right. And so now I think I've got to the stage where I'm like, I don't have a clue really what's going on, even inside my body. And that's okay. Like, if I don't know, if I don't know what the meaning of life is, that's okay. And in fact, that's kind of fun and exciting. I don't know what's around the corner. I don't know what the universe has got in store for me this afternoon. Well, I broadly speaking, no, you know, because um, I'm going to go and meet a friend for a coffee and I've got to write some, what, got to do some writing. That's nice. But, you know, I woke up this morning and I was like, right, I'm going to go to do personal training. And then I've got a thing with Julia. And then my editor at the Telegraph calls me up and says, Bryony, can you write something on a dish of tomorrow's paper on this? And I'm like, okay. And suddenly my day shifts entirely, but uh, there'll be an energy from it, you know? So who knows? But there is the paradox, isn't there, by acknowledging that we don't fundamentally have control and we don't fundamentally know and that we kind of let God and let go, that that is in itself liberating. When we feel we can nail down control Mm -hmm. by having knowledge, by working hard, by proving that we're right and everybody else is wrong or whatever our version of having control is, in some ways, that's what drives us mad. Mm, yeah, I, I definitely think that trying to control the outcome of things has made me really unwell. Yeah. This may be too personal a question and you can ignore me. I'm really interested in how we inherit patterns and we pass patterns down. And I'm wondering how what you've learned influences your parenting. <laughs> I mean... Sometimes I feel like this is going to sound bonkers and not very responsible, but sometimes I feel like I'm growing up with my child, which says, but um, I have found that what parenthood has been for me, it's been a really powerful motivator to get well and to get better. And it took me time. Don't get me wrong. My daughter was four when I got sober and it, it is what it is. We are where we are. But it does tell us that love is transformative in that you loved her enough that you wanted to be different. I mean, that in a way you couldn't love yourself maybe Mm. and you were destroying yourself because you needed to block the pain or that was your only mechanism for blocking the pain. But in the end, your love for her was what motivated you to want to get well because you wanted her to have a loving, sober mum. She deserved better. She deserves, you know, the world. But The other interesting thing I've learned with parenting is that I suppose I always had this notion that children were like mini versions of you, yeah? And I think that's kind of very much something we have in society of like our mini-me's and, oh, they're just like their dad or they're just like their mum. And actually what interests me most about my daughter is how she's herself. (laughs) Yeah. That's so lovely. She's she's not an extension of me or my husband. And she never should be. A child never should be, you know? And I think that has been the really key learning, the thing that has transformed parenting for me has been that just allowing and accepting and loving, you know, that thing of unconditional love 
of we love you when you're throwing a tantrum, we love you when you're howling with laughter, we love you when you're sitting on the loo, whatever. I will always love her. It's not dependent on how she behaves. And that's the complete opposite of in some ways, what were your drivers, isn't it? In the sense of needing to perform to be good enough. What you're talking about is that you're loving her for who she is, authentically, congruently herself. When she drives you nuts, when you hate her, when you're too exhausted, you'll always love her. And she knows that you love her, however she is, whoever she is. Yeah, I hope so. And again, I make mistakes. And don't we all? Also, I don't begrudge or resent my parents at all for using that model of parenting because everyone, <laughs> newsflash, everyone in the 80s was using that model of parenting. Yeah. Also, that came from a place of wanting the best for me. They want me to be happy, you know. Yeah, yeah. And to do well. And obviously, I want my child to do well, but I also want her to be able to not do well does that make sense well I think what you're saying is you want her to be herself yeah and I feel incredibly lucky to have come of age I suppose that I'm not my part of my parents generation because I think that we live at a time now where the, we're just so much more articulate about mental well-being, mental health, mental illness, all of which are sort of different things, I think. The vocabulary is there in a way that it, it perhaps wasn't. And the knowledge and the research. Yes. And there will be things I, I imagine we'll look back on in a hundred, well, we won't because we won't be here, but our great grandchildren will look back on and go, I cannot believe that they used to behave like that or do that or think that the mind-body connection wasn't there or something. Um, and so I don't resent my parents at all for that. Um, I may have done over time. <laughs> yeah, and as my children do me, but in some ways it's freeing to recognise that your parents were doing the best they could given who they were and the time that they lived. Yeah rather than constantly being angry and resenting them, because that's like self-harm, isn't it? It just poisons yourself. Yeah, but I think you probably have to do a bit of that to get to the other thing. Totally, and you have to have the conversations with them. Yeah, I mean, on, on a daily basis, my daughter goes through that, you know, with me. I hate you. <laughs> I hate my life, and I'm like, whoa. And we do our best, and we go again. And it is the going again. And also where you love most, you hate most mm -hmm. and make your deepest mistakes. Because indifference is the opposite of love, isn't it? Where mm -hmm. you kind of don't give a shit. And so where we really love is also where we fuck up, basically. Yeah. And we learn by fucking up. Yeah. When we let ourselves and don't just attack ourselves. Yeah. I mean, I learned that from my daughter. Her teacher says to her, how do we learn? By making mistakes. Good teacher. So, Bryony Gordon, do you have any questions for me? Okay. I suppose addiction is sort of runs through me. I've spent most of my life wanting to do the right things, but needing to do the wrong thing. What advice would you give to like someone who right now feels like they're sort of split in two? That is such a good question, isn't it? Like those two competing mindsets if you like of longing to do the right thing to get loved and belong and feel of worth and 
the pain of that being so great that we end up doing all the things that are the completely opposite of getting our needs met and then sets up this horrible looping cycle of self-loathing when our longing is this to be connected and to be loved and yet what we do means that we hate ourselves first more than anybody else and criticize ourselves first but then also do behaviors that are sabotaging so that people kind of step away from us and I think we are as different on the inside as we look on the outside so that each of us has our own unique map of this and so that we have to kind of know what our own map is that where are the holes that we go in what are the sources of pain for us like there isn't a one-size-fits-all answer but if I was working with you as a client I think what we would do is go back and look at your early stuff to begin with what was the landscape that built you in connection and attachment with yourself and your care providers what are those early patterns and memories really of of disruption of where the kind of where the pain comes from because you can't really begin to repair what happened until you know what happened and some things we won't remember but i think we all need a story that makes sense enough for ourselves of where we've come from and name what that is and name what's going on and then that gives us a capacity to turn to ourselves with self-compassion you know and I have lots of clients who say to me well everyone says self-care self-compassion I don't know what that is I don't know what that feels like and I get that it is hard but I think it's finding our innate sense of love which is in all of us that we are born with and gently and sometimes only for a few moments turning it towards ourselves so putting down that very critical attacking cruel lens and like going oh and in that moment something changes i don't think we remove the injuries from the past but i think when you really let yourself turn to yourself with a bit of warmth and less vicious attack something changes and i think from that moment you can use that and grow that and i do think what we allow ourselves to think about and where we put our attention and having an insight of whether we're being critical or or supportive and compassionate and loving helps change our relationship with ourselves and the story we tell ourselves and then that changes the person we become and our outcome that was a very long answer oh it was a really beautiful answer though it had me tearing up a bit did it which bit of it got to you? The moment where you spoke about talking to ourselves with love and putting aside that critical voice. I was thinking this morning I went, I do strength training and my lovely strength trainer said, she got me throwing this very heavy kind of essentially sack of sand. She said to me, I don't want to know who you're thinking of while you're throwing that because there's some real, <laughs> there's some real like... <laughs> rage going in and actually what was interesting was I wasn't thinking of a person or someone I was angry with I was thinking of that critical voice I have with myself because I was like I just want to put that down I want to put that down I don't even want to criticize it I just want to put it down and be like enough so yeah that really spoke to me 
Do you know about the work of Dick Schwartz and internal family systems and his idea of parts, that we all have parts of ourselves? Mm -hmm. And his idea of there are no bad parts in the sense that we've developed when we were suffering mechanisms that were there intentionally to kind of protect us from pain. And that your critical voice was, I guess, an early part that is there to push you to get your needs met. And really his work is about giving each part of ourselves, and we all have lots of different parts, a voice and a space and understanding what their intention is for us, what they're there for. And then that allows them to connect with our core self, which is the bit that you felt in that moment when I said, when you turn to yourself with kindness, that connected with a core, like, all self, where you can just allow yourself to be. Yeah, just to be. All parts of us, good and bad. And I think that's the other thing is that I think growing up I had this notion that the bad parts of me had to be got rid of and they had to be cut out uh, yeah because maybe other people didn't have bad parts to them and then actually what recovery and therapy has shown me is that we all are a mass of parts some are good some are bad and we accept all of ourselves and so when I go into a horrible place of obsessive compulsive like an episode of obsessive compulsive disorder and all intrusive thoughts are terrible by that they're intrusive. Can I just pause a moment and say, you say it very fast, like it's just a thing, and I wanted to acknowledge how painful intrusive parts are. Yeah, thank you. But I find that as I've got older and I've done more work on myself, it's not judging myself for having those thoughts because they are just thoughts. I heard something someone said once recently which really really helps me which was you are not your thoughts you're just the person that hears them oh that's lovely <laughs> yeah isn't it and that really helps me to not yeah. get sucked into them because the more I get sucked into them the more baby intrusive thoughts born <laughs> you know whereas if I just go oh well, there you go well that was interesting and then I move on and that is a version of mindfulness no yeah like don't dig into them but just let them come through you let them have their voice hear them let them be mm. and then you can stay in the moment rather than trying to nail them down or block them and I think that's what you're really learning and I think all of us need to learn me included is that we can't Marie Kondo tidy ourselves internally to make us just all tidy like our sock drawer that we have lots of different feelings and there isn't one bad one or one good one but that is who we are because we're sentient human beings and to allow the multi versions of ourselves multi dimensions and feelings of ourselves mm. to live rather than try and cut them out or or drink them out or drug them out mm. yeah but maybe we we have to do all of those things to get to that stage you know i'm in a way grateful for alcohol and drugs how else was i supposed to live without them <laughs> Well, of course I drank and of course I did drugs because I was in so much pain and my I didn't know how to deal with it. No one had given me a toolkit, you know, and no one does, but they worked until they stopped working. And here I am talking to you. Very alive. And what I get from you and how I guess I'd like to end the podcast 
is that you are really a woman who is allowing and finding ways of being yourself fully. And that is both scary and terrifying and difficult and exciting and positive and energizing. Thank you. That's lovely. That's a, that, I like that. I'm trying to be myself fully. I'm trying to climb through all those layers I've put on to find me. And you're on your way. And that's the best you can do. So on that, shall we end? Yeah. Thank you so much for my therapy session, Julia. Thank you so much for joining me, Primey. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. I'm really curious to hear what your response was to my wonderful conversation with Bryony Gordon. And since she's roughly the same age as you, there was a lot about parenting and mental health? What were the kind of things that came up for you? So quite a few things. Like you say, I think there's the Venn diagram of sort of what is going on for her in her current life and ours. There's quite a lot of environmental similarities. But I loved what she sort of talked about in relation to reclaiming of mental illness, which I think is happening a lot right now, that she wrote about OCD and the police didn't come to her door. And I think that for so many years, there's been so much shame attached to mental illness, which is gradually dissipating. Like I see a lot of young people and some have a lot of shame about mental illness and some don't. Some, it's part of their identity. And I think we are all on a spectrum of physical and mental health. So whatever it is that you are struggling with, most people are struggling with something. And whether you need help with it or not just depends on where you are on the spectrum of unmanageability. And it doesn't mean that you are bad. And I really can't emphasize that enough. And I I do think that there's a shift. So that was sort of one of the things that I was thinking of. Mm. I thought it was very interesting how she was talking about how the writing was her way of de-shaming, that by putting it out there, she was kind of going, anyone else or is it just me? (laughs) And it made me think, I'd mixed views, I'd be interested in your guys' thoughts. As social media has exploded, people more and more do share their experiences. And it's interesting to me to think about to what extent are those things really healing things to do? de-shaming and connecting you find other people and people validate your experience and it's a really powerful medium to de-stigmatize mental health and to get support and at the same time I also worry and feel concerned sometimes for some people not in the context of Brownie but that they can overexpose themselves on a platform where often when you're sharing the most vulnerable parts of yourself it maybe should be with people you trust who know you and there's the risk of sort of re-traumatization by putting yourself on a public platform with these very vulnerable experiences. And I thought about it with this podcast, you know, how safe is it to ask people to talk about their experiences and 
do we protect them or not and how and I agree Sophie I mean I I don't think that I have a an answer I have this understanding that all of our different identities at the core of each of our identities is the need to be loved and to belong and also the need to stand out and attract a mate although they are both wired in us they can fight against each other in the sense that by speaking publicly and being your most vulnerable, you're hoping that you're going to get back love and belonging and you're doing it into an environment where you will stand out because you're wanting to stand out to attract attention, but it's risky because you have no idea what it is you're going to attract. And, you know, Brani said that, didn't she? I mean, we don't want to talk about her specifically here, but as a, a framework, I mean, I think it's very common that we can look for our value by the number of likes or followers or listens or like we have on the podcast more listens each week. Is that how valuable we are? And it's such a complicated metric, isn't it? I think the dilemma I'm left with is the feelings that we have internally are not fed by metrics. I think we can enjoy the fact that we extend the reach of what we're saying or doing and so that people have greater understanding of their own internal worlds. But it isn't numbers that are going to make me feel good as a person. And I think this, that's in some way the same in what you're talking about. I think there isn't a black and white answer. I think you sort of just have to kind of know yourself <laughs> and know your level of resilience and be thoughtful about what you are putting out there. And I think what is difficult is that sometimes when people are in a vulnerable place, they are sometimes more impulsive and yeah. make decisions that aren't always thoughtful. I think particularly if you're like a teenager, like a, a 16, 17, 18 year old, where your brain development is at a risk-taking, impulsive phase of its development and you don't have anyone who is necessarily going to stop you doing something that later that you might regret. And I think that... There isn't necessarily an obvious answer to how to sort of combat that beyond teaching as your child grows up and becomes a teacher. Firstly, obviously, online safety and all of that stuff, but also a mindfulness and a thoughtfulness and a capacity to reflect, to sort of slow down before you make decisions and think through what am I doing this for and what am I going to feel about any potential reaction and what risks am I taking in that right and I think like you say that there's also such uh value and Brian already spoke to this of finding community and finding belonging and I actually think a lot of teenagers find that online too particularly sort of in the LGBTQ community and things like where you might live in a place where there isn't other people like you and you can find a community online and I really related to that sort of needing to find a sense of community, not necessarily through mental health, but actually in motherhood, because I think motherhood is another place that can be really, really lonely. And there are all sorts of sort of ways to connect with other mothers when you're crazy and awake at 3am and breastfeeding. And there are lots of sort of apps out there of like other mothers who are also awake and breastfeeding. And Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. So I think that feeling of belonging is so important. It's so important, and not to repeat ourselves, but there is no black and white answer. And But one of the things I was thinking was about you know, validation. 
I guess what we're talking about in part is what's the agenda behind what we're offering? And I think you were saying, um, there's a potential risk of wanting to have a certain need met of approval or love or validation through likes. So actually, deep uh, validation and self-love comes from the people who know us and are close to us. And that's where really nourishing support can come from. And then there's other uses where it's finding belonging and finding communities like us and reaching out. And that works really incredibly well on those platforms. I'm not that there's an answer, but I guess makes me think about, you know, why am I offering it and what's the, what am I looking for? And that's part of the question of making the decision about whether it's a safe decision or not. And the intention. I think the intention is important. I would think that about our podcast too, right? Is that our intention is very much not to expose people and make people feel vulnerable, but actually have a platform to connect and to share and to create community. The other question I was wondering about listening to her was, you know, how your parents fuck you up and the question that she had of you spend the rest of your life kind of undoing what's been fucked up in your childhood and how therapy has a part to play in that. And I was thinking of people listening about, and I've often had it with clients, how much do you go back to your parents and get them to acknowledge and say sorry for their mistake? You know, how, how much can you do on your own without confronting your parents? And how much do you actually need? So she did have good conversations with her parents and, you know, has come to terms with it. But I think it's a big dilemma for people, isn't it? I think the answer to that is is that you can try, but it really depends on your parents. You don't have any guarantee that they are going to be able to hear you and if they don't there's a risk of re-injury that you actually re-injure the original wound right yeah but I also think that there is a value to knowing that sometimes hard conversations take time and that you might say something to your parents that is very hard for your parents to hear whatever it is whether it's something about your life that they didn't know or something about their parenting that they have a very big reaction to whether it's anger whether it's shame whatever the thing is and I think that as adult children you can give your parents some time to ask questions to think to process what it is that you said because usually when you bring up something and have those conversations it's something that you have been thinking about and processing for a long time but it might be like a total newsflash to your parent. And so saying to yourself, I am going to tell them these things and then I am going to give them six months, eight months, 10 months to ask questions, be an asshole, process it. And if after that time they are still not able to either accept it or accept me, that's when I'm going to make a decision on what I'm going to do next in terms of my relationship with them. I think that's such useful advice. So. Yes, I, I was like, yes, Emily, that's very useful advice. I, I was also thinking, I've often had kind of chit chats with people who maybe haven't had much experience of therapy, and it can have a sort of rap for being about blaming your parents, like go to therapy and find out what your parents did wrong and then blame them. And I think so differently about therapy than that. I think the hardest moments in therapy can be the moment where you realise, even though it can be really helpful to understand the whys, like what happened or what was it like or where did this come from? Ultimately, if you're an adult coming to therapy, 
it is going to be up to you to work out what to do with it. There's no undoing. Those conversations can be healing with parents. They can help them. But by this point, you're an adult and there's something that is working out. How do you want to manage the wounds that you have, even if there was someone else that was the reason that the wound was there? And that sometimes you can disempower yourself by locating the need for working out what to do that with the person who you feel is responsible for that happening. I think it's useful to think about early experiences and your parents' role in that and your childhood and siblings and all of those things, not in the context of blame, because I would say that 99.9% of parents I have ever met are doing their best. And sometimes their best just isn't quite good enough. But I think it's about helping people make sense. Like this this is helping me sense of, of why my relationships are like this, why I feel like this about myself. And exactly as you say, to empower you and not to think, oh, well, this is all your fault. Now I'm just stuck this way forever. The opposite, in fact. Mm. It's empowerment and insight and that insight can give you choice. We need to come to the end. I just need to acknowledge that between us, we've had those conversations when you've given me feedback. And Not me. No, no. You must be thinking of Soph. <laughs> and Soph. No, I've had feedback from Soph. <laughs> <laughs> and my part of it is that when you have, and we've had those conversations, as much as they've been painful and difficult, I think there's something healing for me as a parent when we've had them so that we both know what it is that I did wrong or how I feel because otherwise I'm constantly feeling that I did something wrong but when I actually know what your version of it is and we can talk about it and I can be upset about it or not even necessarily agree with it although actually I think I always have to that it builds a stronger bond between us when we can allow the difficulty and the complexity. Yeah I think it can allow us to be closer. So on that note, thank you both very much, Emily and Sophie. Thank you, Bryony Gordon, for a really fascinating conversation. I mean, we've only touched on a tiny amount of it because there's so much that she talked about and she was so open. So I'm enormously grateful. And thank you for listening. And if you like the podcast, do share it with your friends, rate and review it, and we can help the podcast grow. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.